Mark Lamborn, welcome back to the Business of Betting podcast. It's a pleasure to have you back on. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Australia. No matter where you are in the world, if you're looking to find your edge in sports betting or racing, you'll need to visit the Betfair Hub. From analysis to betting psychology, it has everything that you need. Simply visit betfair.com.au slash hub. Mark Lamborn, welcome back to the Business of Betting podcast. It's a pleasure to have you back on. I'm surprised it's been three years, Jake. Uh, obviously, there's been uh, vast changes in racing in Australia, both uh, mostly political, but uh, there's uh, obviously a lot to talk about since we last caught up. Um, and uh, we're now entering um, a particularly weird phase, both world-wise and racing-wise. Um, coronavirus has uh, pretty much shut down most of the world. But racing in Australia continues, much to the consternation of parts of our society. So whilst we see it as an opportunity to showcase racing because we're the only game that's going on, at the same time we're attracting a bit of stigma because we've, uh, well, by, by dint of uh, the political personalities that run racing, uh, we've managed to soldier on, but um, that's not making everyone happy at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't mind speculating a little later on in the show about what that might bring or how it might unfold over the next few months and then what impact that might have later on. But uh, before we get to those topics, I want to urge everyone to go back and listen to the first episode we did, albeit a number of years ago now, as you referenced, but I think still very relevant and a lot of great information that you did share. Uh, To kick things off here, I want to talk about uh, a syndicate that you spent some time at and and recently you released some content around that with with, uh, Mr. Taylor and, and you guys put that into the world. So I wanted to... Just touch on that, and I guess from a starting point, uh, how did your time there change you and or shape you and how you thought about racing or how you just thought about the process generally? Well, it was a turning point really in my in my racing career because I up until that point, let's say I'd, I'd been in racing for 25 years at that point, but um, really thought that I knew everything, and uh, that's a, a trap that... Um, many players can fall into. And it wasn't until I'd um, sort of run aground, my bookmaking career had run aground at that point, and I was casting around for new opportunities, fresh opportunities in racing, and they all seemed to uh, coincide at the end of last century. Um, and this um, Humbleton mob that suddenly advertised, popped up advertising in The Sportsman at the time um, took me on um, a sharp and short journey. Uh, I responded to that advertisement and that, that made me aware, I think I mentioned in my soundbite, that, um, that, uh, that there was a, a, a sort of a repository of sharp racing information that existed um, outside the racetrack. And um, not only that, they were really cutting-edge ideas that... Um, uh, that they'd, um, I guess, introduced to um, um, a number of hand-picked consultants. And so that uh, exposed me, I guess, to um, 
or, or sort of ramped up my um, my knowledge in, um, in 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 a sort of a rapid way. I was um, uh, firstly I was it was all, almost like I was chastened because I realised that um, you know whilst I thought I, I knew a lot, there was a lot I still didn't know, and there was this mob that was. Um, it was operating in a corporate fashion, a very secretively corporate fashion, and they were disseminating um, these cutting-edge ideas amongst um, amongst their analysts. And I, um, I then spent two or three years almost being berated by them for, um, for you know for not fitting in with their um, with their techniques. Um, but at the same time, because I was um, Allowing myself to be exposed and and um, and chase the word I used was chastened before by their by by their sort of knowledge. I um, it, it definitely took me um, to another level in a hurry. I, I never had many clues about how the organisation was put together. You know, I understood that uh, this infamous Jelko was at the head of um, at the head of things. I, um, I did get to meet him many years later uh, because he's great mates with Rob Waterhouse, but um, never as part of that Humbleton experiment that I participated in. So this idea of leveling up, often it's described as linear or it's an accumulation of time and, and knowledge and, and it can't necessarily be jumping up levels. Did you find that you might have been able to jump a few levels just by being exposed to other people, other ideas, other philosophies that you wouldn't otherwise have been exposed to, or, or more broadly, we as a general public wouldn't necessarily get exposed to? Well, the, there's two aspects to that. So firstly, you need to be aware of the fact that you don't know everything. Uh, and it's, it, look, it's, it's easy to be arrogant, particularly if you are performing well. No, I'm not saying that I was performing particularly well at that time. But um, so you need to sort of humble yourself in some way to be able to expose yourself to um, ideas and concepts that um, that you may not have um, considered previously. So the real um, uh, benefit of my time at Humbleton was the fact that I suppose I was exposed to a bit of American racing and that led me on to, let's say, Andy Bayer's books and then... Um, Tom Brohammer's books. Um, I, I became quite captivated with some of the ideas of American racing, which I then uh, managed to employ in my Australian Australian racing experience. Uh, up until that point, you know, we'd sort of looked over at America and said, "Well, look, you know, there's 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 not much form talk or published form talk in Australia. Uh, there's a lot of publications in America, but you know, they're mostly about dirt racing, and um, they don't apply in Australia." Well, that's True in some ways, but I mean, you know, the thing is that there are there are um, learnings to be had um, from other jurisdictions that uh, that you can uh, adapt and um, and employ um, well. And um, I think the Humbleton experience was, hey, look, here's here's a style of racing that you can um, critique in a particular way. Um, and there's a lot to lot to be gained from that critiquing that um, you can then redeploy in your own uh, environment. Do you think there's a way that Humbleton, or how can Humbleton be good for racing? Obviously, it's a 
It's a syndicate. It does what it does. Is there a way that it, or currently, or when you were there, that it's a, a positive impact overall on racing? Obviously, there's the the uh, the turnover aspect to it, and obviously from there, there's discussions around rebates and a whole lot of other things. But do you see a way that we can we can find a, a positive spin on how Humbleton can be viewed? Well, from my point of view, you know, rebates aside, it has been an enormously positive influence in racing because it's ratcheted the game up. It's 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 uh, it's come in as a as a level of sophistication that's that's meant that the players in our game have had to adapt in some way, and it's also offered some type of university for uh, those of us that were lucky enough to um to be exposed to their sort of cutting edge ideas. So I'm. Um, you know, very grateful that uh, that I had that experience. Uh, it's it's the sort of, well some of the work well, the, some of the work that I did was um, you know a touch on the on the banal side in the sense that it's it's not that much fun um, just you know watching and rewatching and rewatching videos of horses that you have no no knowledge of from a far off jurisdiction. But um, you know, I certainly think that it, it aided my development as uh, as a form player in a big way. Do you think there is any other comparable family tree in terms of racing and betting that has come out outside of Humbleton? Obviously, it sounds like the the list of pupils is is long and distinguished. Do you think there's anything else that rivals that in terms of just what impact it's had overall? And it wasn't one aspect that I was thinking of, but you're right. It it obviously has its indirect impacts into the industry up until today, even. Yeah, so we go back to um, the days of Mark Reed, um, which I, I've obviously mentioned Mark on a, a number of occasions in the first show. He was the first, I suppose, you know, he, in, in in modern experience. Um, you know, people will talk talk of say Cliff Carey and people, um, the the old, older generations. But Mark Reed was, let's say, the first school of racing that um, that certainly. Um, spat out that's perhaps not the right word but you know there are a number of graduates of the marks mark reed school of racing that are that are applying their trade very well in uh, in the australian racing landscape these days and there were methods and um uh, learnings that, that that came from there that um were quite sophisticated and um continue to make their mark um most notably uh, in the in the corporate world of sports bet. Since then, um, we had the rise of Humbleton, but soon after the rise of Humbleton came the phenomenon of Dr. Nick. Now, we thought that Joko knew everything, but uh, Dr. Nick, who I um, spent a lot of time with person to person in the, the betting rings of, the Sydney, of Sydney in the 1980s, um, he, um, he had a son who was particularly brilliant, or two sons that were particularly brilliant, and so in concert with those two sons, Dr. Nick uh, formed um, an organisation that, um, that whilst not as vast as Humbleton, um, I suspect had um, intellectual capital or property that, um, that uh, surpassed Humbleton. And so we've seen the rise of that, uh, that organisation. They're also very intensely private. Um, and so through the 2000s, Dr. Nick has, has become a juggernaut that um, few would have anticipated even though we realised, you know, what what a clever brain he was back in the 80s, uh, he's managed to um, to set himself up or set the organisation up to um, to bet worldwide, like Humbleton, and 
he's left an enormous mark on Australian racing. I think he's really concentrated on areas that were perhaps un, somewhat untouched, areas of the marketplace I'm talking about. That um, he's, he's really refined the marketplace in an amazing way through the, um, through the early 2000s up until, um, up until now. It sounds like things I really personally don't know much at all about Dr. Nick and his enterprise. I obviously have heard different things about it as well as his Humbleton, what you've talked about and others. Are there major differences in their methods, even to Mark Reed, if you if you thought about those three uh, enterprises, are they very similar in how they go about it or the, are there market differences that have allowed them to all individually be successful uh, in what their endeavors are? I think that they all resemble each other in the sense that they're, they're, they're constantly seeking edges in the marketplace. And um, well, you know, yesterday's edge is tomorrow's um, losing um, aspect. So it's about being ahead of the game and managing to, um, to capture those or identify those edges, uh, capture them and then capitalise on them. And um, all three of those organizations that i've mentioned reed humbleton and dr nick have have seen have sought to um to uh to, to attack those aspects of the marketplace and milk them for what they're worth and then move on to the next edge um i think that uh, the dr nick phenomenon has aggressively identified those edges and um i think you know as i mentioned before the intellectual capital that uh, resides in that organization is possibly superior to the others, um, and that's really enabled their um, their rise. Having said that, uh, there was a, um, a remarkable announcement at the end of last year where um, apparently Dr. Nick was moving away from fixed odds betting. Um, the the um, published reason was that it was um, it was a relatively inefficient means of addressing the market on. I don't know what to make of that, but certainly uh, the betting landscape in 2020 has noted the, uh, the disappearance from um, parts of the marketplace of the Dr. Nick enterprise. And I think that there are some clever analysts around the place that are, that are taking advantage of that now. So generally overall, is that better for the marketplace or worse here in 2020? Have you seen it? As a positive, generally, obviously there are some that will slide into some of those positions and, and try and take up that position in the marketplace, let's say. Uh, but, you know, this idea of professional punters are bad for, or bookmakers see them as, as, you know, adversarial and the enemy and therefore they're bad and they're bad for the industry and they don't necessarily help. Is that perpetuated with this or is there another better way to look at it? Well, I think it's a hole that, yes, uh, will be filled by um, by clever players, but at the same time, you, you want this expertise to be finding or to be refining the market all the time. I mean, that's, uh, you know, racing is an amazingly efficient marketplace given that, you know, the returns are, well, because of the lack of uh, recreational and, and mug fill that this marketplace has, um, has come to experience, um, if I contrast the racing marketplace with the financial marketplace, you've got um, a broad spectrum of players in the financial marketplace and there is there is what we know in the racing land as fill, which is money that's there right for the plucking. In the racing marketplace, it's a, it, it, 
was was there in the right up until the 70s. It's a, it dissipated since that time, and you know you've got amazingly sharp minds who are, are battling away there for a relatively small return. Uh, nonetheless, it's clearly a game that's captivated minds and um, certainly captivated my mind. But uh, yeah, it, as far as you know, Doctor Nick removing himself from aspects of the marketplace, I, 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 that disappoints me. Um, but I, it, it, because it's constantly been a game that's attracted and captivated um, sharp minds, so I'm sure that uh, something else will come along. And um, you know, as much as the the the, the retailers, uh, the bookmakers, um, try and, and and be sort of hidebound and uh, um, reactive, uh, the fact is that um, they're they're you know they're they're still there to be played and uh, taken advantage of. Obviously, that then gives rise to talk about you know how the landscape's changed tax-wise, uh, and you know how that's made it harder for players. But um, nonetheless, it remains a game for sharp minds and um, and um, egos. Do you think the rest of the industry are disappointed by the Doctor Nick situation, or is it just Mr. Lamborn is uh, and other punters who think it's a very interesting aspect of the entire industry? has been lost and therefore it's a negative? Well, uh, it depends on, on, on your perspective, doesn't it? Um, um, you know, I, I, I guess from my point of view, I, I want Dr. Nick there playing the fixed odds marketplace so that I can reverse engineer in some way what's going on and, uh, and learn from that. Um, the, uh, obviously, the, the retailers, are, you know, they would think that they've, they're, they're dodging a bullet in some way, um, I guess. Uh, without really knowing how they how they view things. Yeah, interesting. So I I remember watching something on Racing.com. I think it was called the Agenda. Um, and Barney, from, the CEO of Sportsbet, was talking about how the last sort of 10, 12 years, or I think all of them on the uh, panel were talking about how it's been really positive. Racing's flourished and there's growth and, and everything's positive. It's expanded and so on and so forth. Do you think if that's true, and I take them at their word... And I hope I'm not misinterpreting what they said, but I think that's what they were referring to. Do you think generally we've capitalized on how well things have been for the last 10 years? And obviously we can project forward from now later on. But do you think if that's true and that's the case that the industry as a whole has propelled itself forward and put itself in a great position? Well, not at all, Jake, unfortunately. Yeah. So whilst that was a fascinating program, uh, the agenda on racing.com, the wagering side of racing, um, unfortunately, they, they forgot to get anyone from the demand side on the program. <laughs> Shocked. Yes. We had, look, there were some really good minds on that uh, on that card, um, but they, they certainly seemed to overlook the fact that the, you know, they said, well, you know, wagering's down on the Victorian Spring Carnival and punters are losing money faster, and, and they, you know, failed to, to, um, to join the dots there. Um, look, the real problem is that, uh, the the players in racing. So we look at the uh, the principal clubs and the author- the regulatory authorities, and then we've got the the retail retailers, the corporate bookmakers. So the, the principal clubs have sought to address the supply side in racing. They've managed to capture um, a great deal of the wagering dollar via um, race fields and um, and then pock tax, uh, which I'm sure we'll expand on later. Um, and and the, the corporates they they rationalise themselves. Um, so we've you know, had a situation where the 
corporate bookmakers have have come have sort of merged and 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 become powerhouses, uh, marketing powerhouses. So we've got a situation where um, the regular regulators are throwing lots of money at particularly prize money, and then the um, the retailers are marketing themselves strongly, and that is seen as um, you know as a very very positive development in racing. But you know if you don't have people to sell to, um, then you're going to you're going to bleed both of those areas dry. And uh, amazingly, you know we've got prize money levels um, way 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 beyond um, any historical prize money levels, and yet the uh, the number of owners have um, have reduced um, and. So it's, you know, we've got all these, we're breeding all these horses that we need to have owners. Um, surely they're you know, attracted by this high prize money game, but we've failed to sell racing in the first place. So you've actually got to be interested in racing to go and to be interested in buying a horse, and you've got to be interested in racing to have a bet on a horse. And um, I think both those uh, sectors of racing have failed to address that. We've, we've thought, well, we'll throw money and that will, you know, that will entice people and we'll, we'll push the, the marketing in front of them, that'll entice people. But we haven't actually recognised that the grassroots uh, doesn't really exist these days. Um, you know, nearly most of our um, most of our sort of hobbies and pursuits are, uh, are passed on and almost in a person-to-person way. So if you think about, and this is an old-fashioned pursuit, but stamp collecting, for example... I um, I was introduced to stamp collecting because my grandfather had sent my father his stamp album, and you know, he saw that as a a, a, you know, a thing to do, a, a means of engaging with his grandson. He was a shit grandfather, but he, he reached out in this way, and um, so my 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 dad sort of introduced me to his father's stamp collection, and. I was away. I was I was engaged on a person-to-person level, and and I spent you know most of my childhood actually collecting, being quite into collecting stamps. Um, similarly with racing, you really need to be engaged on a person-to-person level, and and you know yes, it, it may be great if if it's mate to mate, as twenty-somethings, but if you can if you can grab kids when they're um, when they're young, when they're finding their footy teams and so forth. Then you know you will have um, a devotee for life, and we've just completely dropped the ball in that fashion because, firstly, society has, has turned its back on racing. We've become a marginal sideshow, and we've allowed ourselves to become a marginal sideshow, and that raises questions again about how we've um, how we've engaged in the, in the horse world welfare debate. But principally, um, we're not getting bums on seats um, as as young people, because we're not mainstream, and we haven't worked out how to um, how to engage in the modern world. Yeah, it is an interesting one, and you know, I obviously live in the US, and I see how it's evolved over here as well, and, and talk to some people on that front. And you know, it was funny; I was talking to someone a couple of days ago about leakage uh, with respect to parametric pools and betting over here, and and I know you talked about leakage towards uh, the breeding industry, and. Uh, talked a little bit about the the stallions and, and how that worked last time we spoke. I wanted to ask you about that now, just given, let's just say we have seen a, a bull market overall, certainly for 
the sports bets of the world and maybe the uh, the administrators see it as a bull market and maybe race clubs are pretty happy uh, if we're talking now about potentially or if not already an economic crisis going on and, and further to that again if not already a financial crisis about to hit and certainly here with unemployment going from the highest number ever being 700,000 uh, to hit the unemployment line and, and just last week I think we got close to 7 million here in the US so just the gravity of what's about to hit probably is is about to set in. Do you think there's a way that we will address that leakage towards, for example, the breeding industry? And we'll get to taxation after that, but it does seem one uh, low-hanging fruit that, that could be addressed if we're trying to find ways forward here. Well, interestingly, this this phenomenon, um, the virus has has instantly deflated everything. It's uh, it's the Great Depression all over again, although we're seeing um, uh, political um, political units approach the situation very differently from um, from 90 years ago. But certainly in racing, we are um, witnessing in one, almost a stroke of a pen, uh, last week we had the prize money for the championships cut in half and um, no comment was passed. But uh, amazingly, that um, that was an opportunity for uh, administrators to... Um, to reel things in because what's been happening over the last 15 years is we've seen this prize money race and at the same time they've collected revenues that enable that prize money race but but also put in um, put in place um, revenue collection measures that have caused that uh, that revenue to um, to dissipate quite markedly and we've seen no figures there's been no talk about the fact that um, revenues were dropping off a cliff because of principally the POC tax, uh, point of consumption tax, and um, something was was going to have to happen. Some admission of the fact that we couldn't sustain what we were doing was going to have to happen. Along comes the virus, and there's your there's your smokescreen. It's um it's it's quite um, quite neat in a way that um, that you know everyone suddenly has to tighten their belts, and and we don't have to own the fact that um, we we stuffed it up. Um, so, yes, we're going to uh, we're going to see those remittances that were uh, were flowing off to the stallion owners in Ireland. Um, that's going to be curbed in a big way. Um, we've we've got an Easter sale that's um, that's that's it's going online, but it's uh, it's almost not happening in the sense that a number of principal breeders are withdrawing their um, their yearlings from the sales, and I, that. Immediately makes me think that we're almost returning to the the 17 and early 1800s, where um, where racing was all about owner breeders, and um, you know it was well before we kept captured the mainstream. So, racing is is heading into a um, well a, a weird time. I, I think it's certainly been a, a time that's been long coming and um, is necessary. This great deflation that we're going to experience, and I'm encouraged by the fact that um, you know this this thing is this bubble has been pricked uh, albeit in a very dramatic and um, unforeseen way yeah absolutely and I think the downward pressures on the industry with respect to the leakage to breeders which may not be discussed too much or or the point of consumption tax which I think has been obviously discussed and identified however rectification may not be coming soon I think now more than ever it seems like or arguably it's a time to 
allow wagering dollars to go further than ever before, just given what we're probably going to face here. Do you think there's any scenario where taxation from a point of consumption perspective, race fields perspective, or, or just across the board is going to be addressed to try and stem some of the uh, the impact that this crisis is going to have over the next probably decade, I would imagine? Yeah, so taxation is going to be the, the coalface in, um, in, well, in most of the world's industry uh, that's, uh, that's going to be used to, um, to, to make good uh, what's currently happening. But I wonder if, because racing's been allowed to go on in Australia, um, I, I wonder if we're actually going to be um, put in that, or have, have um, access to that, uh, that particular facility. I, you know, we may actually be punished uh, because after all, the point of consumption tax is a state government tax, and um, uh, there's also the GST that's levied, levied federally. So I'm, I'm not sure that racing is, is going to get much respite uh, taxation-wise. Um, it's it's going to be an interesting time, as you mentioned. Uh, I, I'm not sure that the the administrators actually understand what's going on as far as. Wagering. I mean, you, you saw that agenda program where they're going, well, punters are losing their dollar faster. Well, hello, if punters are losing their dollar faster, then that that that, um, that boots them out of the game um, and they don't come back. So um, I, there just uh, doesn't seem to be that sort of level of recognition that will rectify this, um, this wagering problem, uh, wagering tax problem that we've got. Is the pro punter or the the aspiring pro punter relationship with bookmakers getting worse and more adversarial and, and more problematic because since we last spoke uh and you know we're seeing this more generally but uh flutter group which obviously owns you know patty power betfair previously and they have sports bed and the consolidation in in australia and then here in the u.s you know we've seen FanDuel and what they've been able to do and they obviously have tvg and other properties with the betfair exchange What's been the, I guess, the update, the impact over the last couple of years since we spoke on that front? Because I know you you articulated very well how it was, you know, bookmakers were those to coordinate the flow of money essentially, and and those relationships had become more antithetical and and shifted. Is that still the case today? I think it's worse because um, obviously the margins for these corporates have risen, and they've, you know, their their, their standard response is. Uh, one of well, let's look at our um, our least marginal customers and um, and and make sure that we shed them in some way. So um, they've really um, the corporate landscape has has gone in a way that in the last three years they've they've basically tightened their belts um, and they've attempted to profile their customers uh, in a, um, for want of a better word, meaner and meaner way. So they've um, moved to sort of automatically putting up prices and at the same time profiling the customers so that, um, that uh, you know, fewer pro punters can actually get set. So it's, it's, it's got sharper and sharper in that sense. Um, you know, amazingly, if you're looking at a situation, and we, we, we spent a bit of time talking about it previously, if you're looking at a situation of refining your betting market, then, you know, by all means, put up an automated market, get rid of your form division if you want to, um, and then let the pros, you know, given, let the pros sort of refine your market. So 
sports bet, for example, or in a situation that um, they hate making mistakes. But I mean, you know, they can put up a market there. Their, their book is going to be so large on any given race because they've got such a large market share that they can afford to to let the pro punters chip away at their their, their mistakes um, that the, the, the automated market is putting up and come up with um, you know, quite a good market. Nonetheless, uh, they're driven by this idea that um, winning punters are, uh, are to be um, rejected at every turn. So we still see this sort of standoff where uh, you know, pros are attempting to get a foot in the game and they're, um, you know, they're, they're sort of rebuffed by these, these retailers that are commandeering most of the market share. And you know, they're finding themselves in a situation where they can only play on Australian racing in the last ten, five or ten minutes uh, before start time, because that's the only time there's sufficient volume for them to be able to, um, to to get set. Do you think that's by design by someone? Is that optimal? Is that just a unintended consequence based on the structure and the framework of what it's become? Because I, I had I had wanted to ask about minimum bet laws and if if things had changed in terms of options to punters and whether or not everything's just getting squeezed into that window or there is legitimate options outside of that window, but it sounds like it, it may not be the case. Yeah, well, the, the, the corporates definitely saw themselves as good corporate citizens by agreeing to, to minimum bet laws. Um, they're, you know, they're pretty paltry minimum bets when you consider that, um, that uh, rails bookies in Sydney 30 years ago were betting to lose 5,000, having been, you know, being um, required to lose 5,000 on a single bet. So... To think that those uh, units, um, the Sydney Rails bookmaker who you know, may have had a $20,000 book was, was ordered to lose 5000 on a single bet, whereas, you know, Sportsbet, whose standard book might be a quarter of a million dollars, you know, can, can get away with betting, betting to lose 1000 or 2000 is It's quite extraordinary. But so the corporates saw themselves as, um, as, as coming to the party, you know, where, look, look at what we've agreed to, you know, we've, we're reluctant to do this, we don't really want to do it uh, but we're we're, we're you know, playing the game and it's it's specious really um the um the fact remains that uh there is uh, um, a section of the of the retail market it's the on-track bookmaker who are obviously being forced to, to operate by telephone at the moment but um you know they've they failed to capitalize on the fact that the corporates have had their wings clipped by the by the tax and the, um, the, the the removal of the ability to offer credit. So we've got this segment of the marketplace, the on-track bookmaker, that just cannot organise themselves to to, um, to take advantage of the situation they've been offered. So at the moment, you know, the on-track bookmakers can um, they can promote themselves as offering a good bet at a good price, and they're not probably not subject to the POC tax, and they are able to offer credit as well. So that is, that is you know, a glimmer of light that if they can get themselves organised, that, um, that will add to the marketplace in such a way that will, it'll regenerate um, a bit of the proactivity. Well, from afar now, it seems like it's moving towards an oligopoly a little bit with respect to giants already existing and, and collecting more brands and businesses to, to get even stronger, albeit you, you still have the tab, you still have, you know, sports bet, you still have a number of different options, but obviously with the uh, the Stars Flutter merger more recently and and just the way that, you know, the, the middle tier of bookmaking just seems to be completely stripped out. And 
if you want to call the combined on-track bookmakers potentially that middle tier or or even some of the up-and-coming uh, offerings now. I hear a lot of good things about places like Top Sport, but, but ultimately it seems like, and it may be just a, a trend in technology and, and our communities now with with all these you know fang companies taking up enormous market shares is it headed towards some form of oligopoly which is probably not going to be good for those punters that are price conscious and want to have different options yeah i'd, I'd say it's almost already there uh, we you know we, we are now seeing the sports bet v tab face off um and tab you know for all their um uh regulatory advantages have um have failed to um to, to sort of capitalise on um, on their position, they've cannibalised their own uh, paramutual market, and you know they uh, it, it's almost like the Coles and Woolies, uh, to use a local example, a local supermarket example, uh, has come to racing with the sports bet tab and set to continue by the looks of it. And is there a clear favourite as to who's going to win? Because it seems like they might be from my limited knowledge at this point, but is it something that is uh, is going to be a long-term battle or do you think there is a, an emerging leader in that sort of race? Well, you know, ultimately, sports bet don't have the, um, don't have the advantage that uh, the tab have. Tab have uh, captured the regulator. Um, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of... Um, synergy for want of a better word between um certainly racing new south wales and tab who they see as their business partner so i guess sports bet you know will will sort of come up against that and be, and be unable to overcome that so they'll just settle into that this sort of um duopoly um you know i know that um you know, i've made mention of the on track bookies bookies and you've made mention of a, a very progressive and proactive top sport but um you know they're just not uh, set up to um, to make their mark in a marketplace that that will avail you know that that is is designed for these sort of duopolies that we encounter certainly in Australia. Yeah, I think you might be right. So if that comes to pass and and forges in that direction, from a betting perspective for the betters, uh, it seems like there's going to be limited variance in in pricing. You're not going to have a $4.80 chance that's $6 somewhere else. And if you had 10 different options, those things seem more possible than if we do have a tab sports bet plus a few minor other options. Do you think that is going to be negative and it's going to make pricing generally fit into a, a certain order rather than having any opinion-based pricing out there? Yeah, it's, 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 it's nowhere near perfect competition. It's, uh, it's, you know, for those of us that have um, remember our year 10 economics, it's, it's, Oligopoly—it's—it's uh, it's an oligopoly in nature, and um, and the, you know the the, the semi collusion that takes place in those sorts of markets mean that you you're not getting um, you're not getting a menu of of, of options. Um, you know our, our shining light has always been Betfair, but Betfair has um, you know found itself in a compromised situation in so many ways. Most local punters here are facing a ten percent commission on Betfair on certainly on New South Wales racing, which is a hard and bitter pill to swallow. Um, you know, we've seen the, the you know the, the dominance of Betfair in the UK betting market. We all look over there and wish. Uh, we saw Betfair attempt to um, offer a Hong Kong product uh, just a matter of months ago, and um, very quickly got uh, bullied out of that by um, by the Hong Kong Racing Club. So um, you know, the exchanges are our hopes for the future, but at the same time, the um, uh, 
the demarcation and and the uh, the, the the structure of um, certainly our marketplace here has um, has really shut Betfair off at every turn. Um, so Betfair's not getting the volume that it needs to um, to become a major player in the marketplace, and and you know the the other retailers don't realise what an asset uh, a vibrant and uh, voluble Betfair would be to their own uh, to their own businesses. Are there any silver linings to come with what we're talking about now? Is obviously with uh, homogenous pricing, it's often challenging. Not to mention the other restraints that exist with uh, obviously things we've already discussed uh, and the difficulties for the professional side of, of the punters. Are there things we can glean from this that might be positive that people can uh, hang their hat on, or are we or are we doom and gloom and, and rightly so? Well. You know, I- Unfortunately, we we tend to be our own worst enemies. So the situation that's evolved is we've got these um, smaller pros all squabbling like seagulls over the the initial offerings that are like let's say forty eight hours out from race time, and so they're you know they're prepared to give their intel for relatively small sums, you know, a thousand or two thousand dollars at a time. So I guess you know. The setup is that the corps are, you know, are playing to our egos and, um, and and playing us off against each other, and there's no solidarity or consolidation in, in, in the in the on the demand side that would force some sort of change. So, for the foreseeable future, this is what we're stuck with. This is, um, you know, this is a, a sort of game for rats and mice, and um, and the. Uh, the Jelcos and the Dr. Nicks of this world will exist in larger form, but only uh, at times where the volume becomes significant. And as I mentioned, that's only very close to race time. So we seem stuck with this model for the foreseeable future. I want to touch on the form side, the analysis, the handicapping, and I, I love talking to you about it. Have things changed much from your perspective, from what you were doing a handful of years ago, or even when we last spoke to now? Is it is it a, a vastly different process or is it pretty much the same in terms of uh, how you spend your time and, and what you're doing on the, the analysis side? So my analysis model has evolved very slowly over time with um, occasional sort of um, fits and starts that um, that have um, modelled a sort of a change in thinking. But predominantly um, I see the, um, the, the provision of verified times that... Um, that is available in the Australian marketplace as the current, um, if not winning way, the way, the the, 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 the perceived um, approach. Um, we've got this situation where we've got tons of races around Australia, on, you know, numerous racetracks, and um, the timing systems are um, they're either antiquated or they're not properly maintained. And so the edge appears to be in um, finding your organisation um, that uh, that can provide you with sectional times that um, that give you some sort of meaningful um, reference, and uh, there's um, um, the organisation that I'm um, affiliated with, which is Ratings to Win, which manages to source probably the preeminent um, verified times in Australia. You've obviously got Vince Accardi, who um, who um, Provides similar sort of service and punting form. That's um, that's a more affordable option for some of the uh, pro players that um, that aren't that well placed. Um, they're all attempting to take up the uh, the the, um, the challenge of of fixing the times in Australia because 
um, whilst 40 years ago no one placed much emphasis on times, we've, we've come to realise that um, to know exactly how fast horses are running is pretty useful and uh, particularly from, from point A to point B to point C to point D. So I'd say most of the pros are focusing on, the, on, on getting the times right and then trying to work out how to use those times as best they can. And I guess in the three years since we spoke, um, my emphasis has shifted slightly from um, from fast run races to slow, slowly run races. So um, I mentioned in the previous show about the, the, the uh, efficiency of horses running in fast run races and how that um, how that brought them uh, to uh, to peak fitness. And that still applies. But I've come to realise in the meantime, the um, uh, the advantage that horses have that are contesting races that are building in pace. So they start off being run slowly, but the pace gradually builds into the race. And so they, they, they manage to finish the race off strongly. And so you have a situation, if we could use 100 as a par, where the race might be run, the first half of the race might be run at... Uh, 90 and the second half of the race might be around 110 and that that seems to um seems to be the sort of profile that i'm focusing on at the moment that is advantageous to those sort of horses building into form and particularly going up in distance one of the things one of the aspects of times and how races are run when it comes to moving up and back in distance is that um horse that's running in a slowly run race will be able to adjust better to the slower pace of a longer distance and vice versa a horse that's running a fast run race will be better equipped to come back in distance because the pace is faster and to underpin all that horses get slower as you rise in distance um, and that's a truism obviously horses are running at a slower pace as you rise in distance so when you go up in distance, the races will be more slowly run. It's a general rule. And when you go back in distance, the horses, the races will be more quickly run. So the, the sort of springboard that you're coming from will be important. Um, horses going up in distance probably need to be coming from a race that was building and um, the opposite for horses coming back in distance. That's sort of one of the key sort of developments in my in my form analysis over the past few years it's really fascinating because i'm sure a decade ago no one was talking about these types of things probably because the data didn't exist or if it did it was a bit scratchy and now obviously you just mentioned three separate places that offer this type of information that people can can pass through i'm curious as to how you develop your ideas on these types of areas that like aren't that old in terms of they're not decades old you know things like barriers and weights and, and all those other elements that have gone into it. Do you have a, a community of people you can rely on to talk through different things? Obviously, uh, you know, like that example you mentioned with the part-time and, and starting out at 90, going to 110 towards the end, and overall it might be around 100 as a par score. But those things, there's probably intuitive elements that come into it and you have to grasp those. But also I'm sure there's some... Uh, there's an intellectual hurdle there. You need to pass through all these ideas with others and try and figure out what not only is analytically or scientifically accurate, but also within a, a racing context. Yeah, so I operate for, very much from an anecdotal um, uh, perspective, which um, has its own issues. Obviously, you know, the um, there's there's a lot of ideas that you um, 
construct that that, that don't don't submit to um, to a, a strong data review. But nonetheless, you know, we exist as a community in an anecdotal way, and we're sharing um, mainly sort of by social media, and obviously um, uh, the the organisations that I've been front and centre with, the Punters Show, and now Racing Rant, is um, it seeks to build a community of people that are throwing around these ideas. Um, obviously, we're you know, trying to find the next winner as well, but underlying all that is a is a, a sort of a discussion that you can tap into. Um, and my own um, output has been referred to as pearls of wisdom, but I mean, you know, they're, they're all ideas that have been I've synthesised from from operating with a, in a community. Firstly, on the racetrack back in the 80s and 90s, and and since you know, since that sort of cognoscenti has um, dissipated and and, and dispersed, um, obviously we're trying to operate from a um, <clears throat> from a digital um, platform and um, bringing together as as many ideas from people as possible. You know, there's a community of 500 to 1,000 people within the racing rant that are um, that are constantly, you know, let's say, writing in or they're commenting on, on social media about various aspects of form that either I will pick up on or someone else will pick up on and, and, and carry it a bit further. So um, it's it's brilliant in the sense that you know we're all sort of like minds that are that, that are putting our our efforts or Putting ourselves to the task of refining, um, of re- refining sort of and critiquing um, aspects of racing, and uh, I'm sure it'll go, it'll continue on. You know, whilst we may find it difficult to play and difficult to get on, and nonetheless, we're all so passionate about it that um, that you know these these things will will you know will will seep through and 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 be be worked upon and refined upon and 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 sort of build, um, you know, it's, it's almost like there's a library developing of, of, of ideas that um, that youngsters can, you know, who, do, who we are lucky enough to engage in in this in this fascinating pursuit, you know, they can come in and sort of almost um, almost be exposed to it and, 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 and join in the, the journey that we're all on. How long do you think those discussions filter down into the mainstream or how long until you can pick up a paper on a Saturday morning and and maybe see part-times in there or see how quickly from a, a generalized number point of view, whether it's out of 100 or whatever it might be, uh, for the, the first half of the race or the second half or if it's a 2,400-meter race, you know, each 800-meter block or whatever it might be, do you think that is going to happen soon or do you think racing still kind of drops the ball in that regard when any public discourse on the topic of horse racing seems to be, you know, A from B from C and also because it's a seven dollar chance or above it suddenly is a value chance just because the number is higher than seven it doesn't seem like it jumps any higher than that level no and it won't because uh, the the regulator the, the regulator and its business partner own the mainstream media or they uh, they control the mainstream media so there's as in most enterprises that's that's monopolistic in that sense and so there's no reason for them or no Design for change. Uh, this has to exist, has to continue it to exist in the periphery. Um, you know, obviously, social media has, has afforded us um, a, a greater footprint than once upon a time. But nonetheless, um, the mainstream media is is um, it's paint by numbers. Um, there's there's not much we can do about it. Um, there's no desire, or there's no insight really. Uh, so let's say the regulator pays. 
um, the two daily newspapers. Now I realised that you know, once upon a time uh, mainstream media was 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 the be all and end all, and now it's you know it's almost a tiny corner. Nonetheless, it's still your public face, uh, and you know the regulator doesn't really have a clue about how to address wagering. They're um, you know they're, they're all focused on the supply side and. We'll pay the Daily Telegraph half a million dollars a year to um, to print what we want them to print and to publish our race fields or whatever, but they don't have a clue about how to how that interface might interact with their their their, their punting participants. So we're doomed to um, you know continue uh, very uh, bland mainstream media coverage. The other thing is, of course, that racing is, is so on the nose these days that. You know, you pick up, for example, you know, I like to read The Guardian and um, racing is the only sport that's going on at the moment. And yet in the sport pages in The Guardian, there's not not a mention of racing. So, you know, so we've got this this two pronged approach, which is which is the, the bland, you know, let's put the fields in and, you know, a little bit of racing talk in the in the in the daily newspapers. And, you know, we can't get a gig anywhere else unless we're, we're beating up a horse. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Are there things that come in and out of vogue or form factors that you've pushed in and pushed out over time that may have, you know, the pendulum has swung too far into how important this is, or it's gone the other direction and it's uh, not enough because I, you know, I woke up this morning, like I typically do on a Saturday, if it's racing season and I'll go to uh, racing New South Wales or racing.com and I'll watch the replays. And I saw a tweet from the very well-named Jake Henson about, uh, the Doncaster, which had just been run and, you know, it was 18, I think, Natoya from 14 and, and 19. And, you know, it sparks, albeit one race, and we obviously shouldn't overreact and all those different things. But something like weight or other factors that, that swing in and out of vogue, or is it something that uh, once you've stamped it, it's been stamped? Oh, I think, you know, there are overcorrections. So we were, we were weight obsessed in the 80s and we were... Um we were very dismissive of, of weight in the early 2000s, and I think in the last decade, um, certainly there's been a, um, a swing around to um, to weights, principally because uh, we we went to a situation where the limit weight kept rising, rising, and so the spread of weights became quite small, and so that definitely uh, diminished the um, the importance of weight. And in the last few years, we've seen a recognition from the handicapping departments that um, that you know, if we can find riders light enough to ride these horses at the at their sort of true weight, according to the um, the, the ratings and the handicaps, then we, we should allow those horses to run around at those weights. And I'm not, I'm still not convinced as to whether you know carrying 52 instead of 55 actually means anything. But um, the I mentioned in the previous program, the participants do get very keen about that idea, and. Um, so we, we've got two components, um, one of which I'm not sold on, but let's say it exists that you know horses are are um, retarded by uh, four or five pounds, two or three kilos, um, and the other idea that you know if you give a horse um, a weight relief of that order that um, that suddenly the connections will, will ride their horses more positive or will, will present the horses more positively and ride them more positively. And, and so, the, you know, those horses um, 
participate more in in the finishes of races. It's it, look, it's a fascinating idea, but certainly you, you you hit the nail on the head that you know weight is 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 probably in the vanguard of of the factors that that went in and has come back into fashion. Yeah, it's it's really really interesting because I think you know if you go back in history, you'll probably see scenarios like. Or I'll ask you, would So You Think have won the Cox Plate? I think it had about 49.5 or 50 kilos back in 08 or 09 or whatever it was. Would it have won that if it had 55, not because the horse was any faster or slower or better or worse, but would they have taken it to the front and would Bossy have just you know let it free roll and then see if the others could chase? If it, if it has 49.5 or 55, I think the world is a different place from So You Think's perspective. Sure is. I remember you know we were all gobsmacked when So You Think found the front and... Um... You know, I'm sure the fact that he was in that he was put in that position where um, he was perceived to have a great advantage, uh, you know, influenced the uh, the tactics that were employed. It's 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 a great example, um, and he is one of my favourite horses. So you think, um, you know, the fact that Bart chose him to run in the that Melbourne Cup is um, is one of the defining moments of my lo- my racing life. But um, yes, certainly his uh, his three year old Cox Plate is a, is a is a fascinating. Uh, e- um, interrogation of that particular aspect of racing so before i let you go mark i just want to ask about i guess looking forward here obviously with what's going on in the world and and how it's shaping up now with you know racing continuing obviously in uh, in australia at the moment but moving forward are we going to see you know the certain tracks go out of business let's say and we'll only be racing at randwick and rose hill or are we going to see you know similar to the hong kong model in, in some respects but what do you think the overall impact is going to be? Are we going to see trainers go out of business and everything's going to be Waller and Gay and, uh, you know, whoever the top two or three or four trainers are going to be are going to be the, the ones controlling most of the training side? Or how do you see it unfolding? Have you given it much thought? Well, the landscape in Australia is so labour-intensive. We've got so many people that, um, that racing employees, and I think it's the, it might be the third biggest industry in Australia, with a lot of mouths to feed and certainly... The regulators have bent over backwards to um, to attend to that aspect of our industry, and so I, I can't see us rationalising in uh, in the direction of um, a super league, uh, even though we've got these um, got these principles that seem to seem to win all the races. Um, nonetheless, uh, you know, the regulator will continue to um, to see its role as as uh, supporting uh, regional and rural areas, and that's a point that I've, I think they've really failed to capitalise upon. You know, racing's on the nose in, in so many welfare ways, and yet we are the industry that is sending money to the bush when no other industry is. So when you think that there are races being run in the country for, um, for you know, dollars and $30,000, that, um, you know, really the horse flesh is not. It's, it's, there's no meritocracy about it. The horse flesh is not entitled to that, to, to, to be running for that sort of money. But the, the fact is that the regulators have, have deemed it a prudent response to actually to actually set things up so that um, there, are, there are funds that are being uh, remitted to rural areas. And um, you know, racing is performing a great public service in, in addressing our structural um, difficulties or Australia's structural difficulties and you know racing really could be promoting itself as as, as a great uh, public servant in that fashion but um, we don't seem to be a, a to be able to recognize it or b to be able to actually get the message out and so to to expand upon that you know obviously we look at this amazing super league that they've got in Hong Kong and to, you know it's a it's a betting it's a better's dream apart from the fact that they refuse to allow betfair 
Um, nonetheless, we you know, we are you know we've just got a different beast in Australia. We we accept that we've got a different beast, and um, and, and more was the point. We you know we're doing a great job in in supporting a vast industry that uh, that has grown up over over almost centuries. So one final question for you: If we do have a scenario here shortly where racing is is cancelled, let's just say we have an eight week break, what does that mean for someone like yourself? I can't uh, remember any scenario. Uh, in a long time where there might have been an eight-week break without any racing going on. Uh, you and your colleagues and those that are living and breathing racing and have for decades now, is that a, a well-earned respite from what's going on or how will you see that? Well, obviously that depends on the, uh, the response, you know, of uh, the political response uh, in terms of um, subsidies and, 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 and what have you, obviously. Um, it's an interesting to, uh, to, to just step back one level, it was an interesting idea that we set the, the entire economy into some sort of deep freeze, and which would mean which would mean no racing as well, and so everyone bears the burden of this this current unprecedented situation. So we actually didn't do that, and racing continues with the prospect of it stopping um, or being being forced to stop, as it has say for in, uh, for example in Tasmania and New Zealand and the UK. And other places, um, we did have AI only 13 years ago, and whilst there was some racing that was going on around the place, there was, you know, it was very limited in terms of the, the sorts of racing that you would be prepared to play. So there's that we have that the benefit of that experience, and I guess anybody in my situation or a, a part of my sort of um, landscape of of, um, of people. Um, would probably look to Hong Kong and Singapore to um, to to play during the week. The you know they're, they're seen as, as as bettable places, and I know that people are currently skilling up um, in regards to particularly Hong Kong, with the view that um, you know that may that may be all that's left for us. Well, I hope if it does come, and I I don't want it to, but if it does, uh, the industry can collectively take a breath and, and address what's to come from here, because obviously there's a lot of challenges. Mark, thank you very much for your time. It's it's a pleasure chatting with you as always. And obviously we could do this for hours and I, I respect your time. So I want to leave it there. But thanks again for coming on and sharing your insights. Well, Jake, you know, you're performing the most amazing public service of, of, of you know, building this library of, um, of, of thought and um, analysis and um, expertise and um, I um, I cannot um, I certainly jump at the chance every time you mention you know do you want to come on because um, to be to be you know part of this um, of this process is um, I'm very grateful for it. Jake. 